since 2008, Marvel Studios has brought us over 10 years of cinematic blockbusters, and nothing will ever be the same. Can we, as mere mortals, prevail? Join us to find out. Peter Melnick, graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills, with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. True believers, the next chapter begins with another episode of The Marvelists. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick, and this week I am not joined with Eddie Wilson because this is our Odds and Ends Volume 1 episode of The Marvelists. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's show, let's get into how you can get a hold of us on social media. First off, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash themarvelists and give us a like on there. And also on my new page that I have just recently created, where it's going to be home of my musings and ramblings and all-out nerd stuff, and the upcoming Patreon, solo Patreon for myself. Go on facebook.com slash Podcaster. Also follow us on Instagram at themarvelists, myself at Peter Melnick, and of course Eddie is at ewilson. 9193. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Marvelists, myself at Peter Melnick. Eddie doesn't want any of your Twitter nonsense. Hashtag Jeremy Bagley. That that hashtag didn't make sense, but Jeremy is the originator, the icon behind Eddie Wilson and his anti-Twitter chicanery. Also, listen to us on a wide variety of listening platforms. You can hear us on TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Podbean, I believe, just a bunch of different ones, and the big one, Spotify. But going back over to Stitcher, people, go on stitcher.com slash premium and use the promo code at checkout, Marvelists. And when you do, you end up getting a free one month of Stitcher Premium, and it's only $4.99 a month after that one-month trial is over. And to be honest, I really, really, really recommend using Stitcher Premium. Stitcher Premium has a ton of content that you may not be able to listen to any other way, and there's a lot of places out there that it's hard to be able to get. So, if you use Stitcher Premium, you're going to be able to get access to the Weird Al Yankovic concert archives, you're going to get access to the Earwolf archives, the Nerdist archives, Smodcast archives, and you're going to get Wolverine the Long Night, Marvel's first foray into the serialized podcasting format telling a story. And because of everything, because of the success of the story, it's actually been adapted into a comic book from Marvel. And if you want, check it out at your local comic book shop. If they don't have it, have them order it. But use the promo code at checkout when you go to stitcher.com slash premium. Use that promo code, Marvelist, and you're going to get a free one month of Stitcher Premium. And finally, people, rate, review, and subscribe if you're on iTunes five-star of the show. Let more people know that you like this show. And when you do so, what ends up happening is more people get to listen. More people get to experience this show and what we do, what we believe in, and all that good stuff. So once again, rate, review, subscribe, and share it. Share it on social media. Let people know you're listening. Use the hashtag TheMarvelists. Do whatever you can to get us more out there into the ether. Alrighty? So now... This episode, like I said, is going to be odds and ends. Since we started recording this show one year ago, we've actually gotten a lot more content that we just haven't had the time to be able to put up. 
And since things have, you know, been in the situation that there are, we're able now to utilize that content. There's a, there's stuff that we recorded our very first convention, which it's not going to be in this episode, but it will be in Odds and Ends Volume 2, because like I said, there's that much stuff. We have interviews that we recorded at our very first convention that never saw the light of day. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of cool stuff that we're really looking forward to sharing with you all. And there are there are interviews with actors, there's interviews with comic book personalities, just so much great stuff. And yeah, you're going to like it. The very first one we have is from Hudson Valley Comic Con, and it took place last year. And it was Eddie Wilson's first solo show of him at a convention representing the Marvelists. And this show, he was able to talk to Justin Swain of the show Luke Cage. And Luke Cage, I am so far behind on the Netflix shows. As of this recording, Punisher Season 2 came out. And again, I'm so far behind. I haven't even started Punisher Season 1. It's currently just residing there on my Netflix queue, waiting to be watched. Because I'm still on Luke Cage Season 1, and I'm halfway through it. Uh, if you've seen the show, spoilers, earmuffs, people, but I saw the death of Cottonmouth and man, that is a character who is one of the best villains in the MCU. If, if the Netflix stuff is still considered MCU, sometimes it's one of those, is it, is it not? Is it, is it fish or fowl? We don't know. Is it canon? Is it not canon? I want it to be canon because of all of the impact that the characters have had. You look at Daredevil, you look at Jessica Jones, you look at the heroes for hire and the Punisher, and they're solid adaptations of the characters. Sure, from what I've heard, Iron Fist is not that great. That, To be honest, I'm taking my time with Luke Cage because I really don't want to watch Iron Fist because of every single horror story I've heard about this show. But I digress. So what we got here is an interview that Eddie recorded with actor Justin Swain of Luke Cage seasons one and two. And that interview starts right now. Hey guys and gals, it's Eddie Wilson from The Marvelous here on the road at Hudson Valley Comic Con, welcoming and saying a big thank you to Justin Swain, the detective from Luke Cage. Justin, thanks for being here and taking some time to talk to us. We appreciate it. Yeah, this is great. I'm very excited to be here, having a lot of fun. You know what? You just told me something that is exciting. It's your first con. I think, uh, this any, is, anywhere? This is it. This is my very first wow. time walking into a Comic-Con. I don't want to say you're a convergent, but, you know, maybe it fits. I don't know. Uh, who knows? Who knows? We're not going to go there. Okay, yeah. fine. Um, your role in uh, Luke Cage. Let's talk about that a little bit and, you know, um, either how that came to be or what you found, learned through through it happening? Absolutely. I, I played Detective Bailey on Marvel's Luke Cage. Um, we just finished wrapping uh, the second season, uh, which is going to be exciting. It comes out June 22nd, the second season of Marvel's Luke Cage. Nice. Um, the first season was a ball. It was so much fun to be a part of it, and it was very exciting, Much, very much a surprise. It was really a lot of fun. How much uh, constitutes a season? How many episodes? The first one, I don't recall, and how many for this uh, second Thir one? 13 episodes. Uh, and then it will be another 13 episodes this season. You've been in all the episodes from the beginning, I would think. I've been I've been in the season throughout. I'm not in every single episode, but I'm, I'm there throughout the season. What have you found your character to uh, either what you thought it was going to be and what it turned into? Um, kind of maybe give, you know, folks who haven't seen it, perhaps, uh, 
a little more info on the character. It was pretty great. Um, um, on my first day on set in the first season, uh, I was on set and I was examining a crime scene and uh, Misty Knight, the detective, we started talking. And then I found that uh, as the season progressed, my relationship and my part started to progress a little bit more than I thought it was going to, which was a wonderful surprise. And I think one of the, the best parts was um, one day I got a script and they said that I was bespectacled, where I was wearing glasses, so I needed to grab glasses. So I grabbed my wife's glasses, leaving the house real, real quickly. And then so when I was on set and I was looking close at something through my wife's glasses, her prescription started making me feel sick. So I had to quickly take them off. So then my character became this guy who looked at things and then quickly took his glasses off and used them to point at stuff. That's and wild. it became my, my, my character quirk. You know what? Some things happen that way, and, and for good reason, apparently, because it worked. They saw something they liked, and uh, the rest it's, is now, his, it, now it, recent history. It, absolutely. Then it grew, and then they brought me back for the second season, which was a gift. And uh, I'm very happy. It was an amazing season. Look out for the villain. Um, played by uh, Mustafa. He, he plays Bushmaster. He's just incredible. Can you say a little bit about what the season uh, will go, where it will take you and or the story? Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, well, you had to ask. I, I can neither confirm nor deny anything that happens in the second season. Just that there is a second season. Yes. That we can confirm without a doubt. Yes, there's definitely a second season. It's coming up on June 22nd. All right, so here at Hudson Valley Comic Con, Justin Swain, what is your take on if you've gotten a chance to walk around and see what all there is going on here? Um, it's it's amazing, and the energy in the room here, everybody is so welcoming and, and awesome. It's just a wonderful group of people. From my first con, it's perfect. Excellent. So uh, what's coming up for you now, whether it's cons or other work going on that you can tell us? Well, I was just in the movie The Post that was released and uh, nominated for Academy Award with um, Steven Spielberg. Yes. I played uh, Neil Sheehan, and uh, that's still out in theaters right now, so you can check that out. I played Neil Sheehan in The Post. And then we have the big premiere of Luke Cage Season 2 on June 22nd. June 22nd, sounds and good. And I'm going to be at the Philly Con next week. Uh, moderating the panel with Mike Coulter and Theo Rossi. Great lineup, powerful lineup. Yes, Sounds very much. awesome. Terrific. Yeah. Justin Swain, thank you again for being on The Marvelous. Thanks for having me. I love being here on The Marvelous. Next up, we've got an interview that we recorded at New York Comic Con, and that is an interview with comic book legend Eric Larson. Eric's one of the founders of Image Comics, and he's one of my all-time favorite Spider-Man artists. And Years ago, I remember talking to him because I read an interview that he had said. I was I, When I become a fan of a writer or an artist, I will obsess over their work. I will study interviews. I will look up their work, just watch their evolution and where they came from to get to the point they're at now. And Eric is no exception. Eric is, Eric is a no-nonsense, pull-no-punches person when you talk to him at these shows. And it definitely shows in this interview with the advice he gives to young artists. And that's the stuff you want to hear. And when I was listening to this interview, I was really, I was beaming from here to here because Eric is such a fun person to talk to. And like I said, no nonsense. And you want that in an interview subject. And one of the things that Eric had mentioned in an interview he had done with someone else was he always, he always was... I don't. I wouldn't say the word bummed out, but his reaction whenever people would say, "I really loved your work on Spider-Man," it was like going. He said it's like the equivalent of going up to a chef and saying, "I loved when you were working at McDonald's," because of the, I guess, the mass marketability of all the character. It's 
very assembly line, one, two, three. Once you know how to do it, you know how to do it, and it's just done. The thing is this, and I, I had interviewed Eric years prior for another show, and something that I had said to him was, yeah, but you're the guy who does the menu hacks, who makes the burger, but you learn these other little methods to make it even better than it is. Yeah, it's a McDonald's burger, but you just improved on it in so many different ways. And that's how I've always seen his Spider-Man run. With, you know, his work utilizing the Sinister Six, his work with the character of Venom. This interview was conducted the weekend of Venom coming out in theaters. And yeah, it was going back over that. That was an experience of a movie to see that weekend because of the fact I'm in the element with all my comic book peeps watching this on the big screen. And yeah, it was it a great movie? No, it was not. But that experience overall was cool. And speaking of cool experiences, because I'm the king of the segue. Here's our interview with Eric Larson. All right, right now we are joined with Marvel Comics legend Eric Larson. Eric, how are you doing today? So good. I'm doing excellent. Right now it is day two of New York Comic Con. It's kind of winding down. Uh-huh. You've been very busy with your commissions, I see. There's there's quite the stack going on right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, a lot of people people like to get those those old characters that I used to work on and and the modern stuff that I'm doing now, so it's, a, it's just a huge variety of different things that people will ask for. Now, obviously, there's a lot of characters like Venom you've been asked to do, you've been asked to do Spawn, Savage Dragon, etc. Have there been any deep cut characters today? Uh, not today. There's Every now and then you'll get somebody who, who wants something really strange and specific, and so I, I did a Venom cover based on an old DC House of Secrets cover. That one was kind of neat because instead of Swamp Thing coming in and, and startling uh, Ab- Abigail, I'm not sure yeah. who that was at the time, uh, it's it's Venom coming in and startling Mary Jane Watson. So. That's cool. I like stuff like that. It's like, you know, the mashup designs. Yeah, it's been fun. Now... What do you think about the upcoming Venom movie that just got released? Uh, I haven't seen it, so I have no, I have no real, real strong feelings one way or the other. But I mean, what I've seen, look, what I've seen looked pretty cool. So I hope it's a good movie. Now, if this was like the 1990s, do you think they would have done that with practical effects, or do you think it could have? Do you even think that could have been done back in the day? I. Not, not super well. I think it, it would be interesting to see them try. But we've had Swampy, you know, in the 1980s and the 1990s with his yeah, TV that, series. That was that was not beautiful. <laughs> I, I, what do you think is the weakest example of a uh, comic book to screen adaptation? Like, just they didn't, they completely missed the uh, the landing on that. Oh, I, I wouldn't know because I don't go and see the bad ones, you know? So there's, I, I saw Daredevil, I didn't think much of that. Yeah, that's one of those, we're, we're actually going to plan on doing an episode of that, and I, I just don't know, it's, maybe it's just me, but when you don't get the costume right, it kind of, no matter how good the story is, you still should have a maintain a little bit of accuracy towards it. Yeah, I mean, some where they just 
decide how we're going to do go someplace else entirely. But that's like that's the whole X Men franchise. They didn't do any of the costumes right there in any of them. So it's like okay, well those seem to do okay at least. Uh, I mean, Howard the Duck is an obvious sticker. Yeah, that that just stunk up the place. That was not a good movie on any level. I mean, mostly I don't go to see the bad ones. So. Now, on top of that, with the character of Venom, what are some of your favorite things that you've done with the character, you're drawing him, like the elements that you enjoy? Um, he's just he's just kind of a fun character to, to draw. I mostly like to draw when I'm when I'm inking him. He's actually been more fun in in commission form than he's ever was in the drawing and in the comics. Mostly because I'm inking it now and I can just do more interesting things with the blacks than I could do when I was just doing it in pencil and, and having to shade it all in carefully. Yeah, I'm looking at a, a commission you're working on right now, Venom, and there's just the little details. I like I like the drool on from the teeth and it's such a the way you're playing with the the black and the white it's perfect it's fun and it's and, it, and it, as time's gone on I've I've made his tongue sort of more and more alien looking and less and less like a human being tongue and it's just been kind of cool to play with that sometimes I'll play with the textures in the in the black area more than I did when I was on the book back in the day but there's a couple of fairly iconic covers that I was able to do during that period on, on Spider-Man. I'll be honest, I, when you say iconic Spider-Man covers by Eric Larson, I know you didn't say exactly like that, but you know what I mean. But I love that Spider-Man, I killed him well. Yeah, I, I've seen that so many times. I'll, I'll get that cover again and again, and several people have asked me to do recreations of it over the years, too. So It's iconic. Yeah, people, people like that one. When you're making that, you don't realize, hey, I'm going to make something iconic right now. Be right back, no, guys. No, no, no. You don't think about that at all. You just try to do the best you can for, you know, whoever you're doing work for and, and hope it turns out all right. What is the one bit of advice you would want to give to an aspiring artist? Get your work done. I mean, mostly the, the problem with most guys who are just trying to get in is they don't work. They talk about wanting to work and they talk a good fight but you actually have to sit down and and work and there are long lonely hours where you have to put in to get this stuff done and you can't do that playing video games and you can't do that doing a hundred other ways to, to just screw around you actually have to sit down and do the work and get the work done that's a tough one for a lot of people. Yeah, I'm a graphic designer and a podcaster, as you can tell, and you have to put the hard work behind it because otherwise, who's going to do it? Yeah, and, and with a lot of guys, um, you know, a lot of people have tried to break in over the years and tried to break in and, and have showed me their stuff, and, and the quickest way to, to get a, one of those wannabe guys to leave you alone forever is to give them a plot because they just it just slows them up and they can't a lot of guys just can't do it when it comes right down to actually doing the work it just stops them completely 
and it's just amazing that it can just dry up like that. I also feel like criticism can, like how one reacts to criticism can be the make or break. Yeah. And you know, if you're talking to somebody who's in the business, who who, who knows what you got to do, you need to talk to, you need to listen to that person rather than fight them on it. And and really, you know, when you're showing somebody your samples, drop the work and shut up and listen because you're you're not going to argue yourself in, into a job. You know, it just doesn't work that way. If they don't like what they're seeing, you can't talk your way into them saying, "Oh, I guess you're good after all." It doesn't work that way. Yeah, you want, and again, you have to listen. You have to be there yeah. because otherwise, not listening will not lead to results. No, yeah. and that's ultimately you want a job. So do good work and listen to people and, and learn from your mistakes. Because a lot of people don't haven't figured out a lot of stuff, and it's like there's there's a lot to it. It's complicated. Um, and so if you can learn some anatomy stuff and learn, learn some perspective stuff, and somebody's got some insight, my God, listen. I think I told you when I first met you, I basically binge read the entire run of Savage Dragon. I think up to two hundred something, early two hundreds, and. I was actually bummed out that there were no new issues coming up around that time. Oh, wow. So I'm like, I got nothing to read. <laughs> I actually, I had to stop for a bit, so I'm letting it accumulate now. Nice. Uh, do you want to get back to the... Uh, sure. Can you hand me that eraser? Uh, this one? Yeah, that's, that is, that is an eraser. Oh, that, those are ticks. That's an eraser. I, I, thought, <laughs> I thought it was like a wax. No, it's a kneaded eraser. I am a terrible artist for not realizing that. Yeah, no, these are these are these are great. And then when they get dirty, you just uh, you just take the part that's dirty and fold it in, and then it's kind of somewhat cleaner again. Eventually, they get old and tough and terrible. But I think my highlight of today is thinking about container of Tic Tacs with some eraser. That's my crowning <laughs> this achievement. This must be the. What would you say is the common trait that a lot of young artists have that they need to break, like a habit? Well, most of them spend far, far too long drawing, just period. You, you need to actually be able to turn this stuff out monthly, and so you need to be able to crank that out, and, and part of that is just breaking the habit of just meticulously filling in your blacks for forever and and things like that that a lot of stuff doesn't matter um, a lot of wannabe artists don't think about that that there's going to be word balloons on stuff and to leave space for that so that there's space for, for people to talk and there's and a lot of that's that's Compositionally, a, a lot of stuff needs room to breathe as well, and so you know, think you you should be really fill, filling up, uh, you know, a half to two thirds of every panel rather than feeling like you have to pave every every inch of every frame. You know, 
things, things like that. There's a lot of stuff where people just don't, haven't figured out perspective at all. or don't know anatomy very well at all. You know, and it's, you either figure that stuff out or you never do. And going back to the whole getting stuff out on time and everything, you know, like look at how much work Jack Kirby put out. And yeah. obviously there's never, there's only one king, but still, you know, strive to be that. At least yeah. strive to be the next yeah. best. You know, I mean, you, ideally a page should take you four hours. And it's like, that's, there's not a lot of guys who are out there who are doing pages in four hours anymore. It's guys are spending a whole day or, or sometimes several on a page. It's like you're, you're not going to be able to do monthly comics that way. And, I, and you should be aspiring to do monthly comics. Now, going back over to the subject of the king, by the way, this past year was, I believe, his 101st birthday. Uh-huh. Just a plain question. What was it like being able to experience the man in person during your time? Like, what his, cool his work? I, I don't have any. Cool oh, no, I mean, like, I, I mean, I've met him a couple times, and it was always at super loud convention type things. So it was never, it was never ideal to be able to talk with him. It's just funny that there's there's so many stories that people have of him, and he's he's almost like a uh, folk legend now. Yeah. But it's cool to see his work embraced and. Yeah, I mean, when his work was coming out, it was like there was nothing more exciting than that, you know? It was just like, oh, it's a new Jack Kirby comic now? Awesome, man. What was the piece of Kirby art that was the moment when all the synapses connected and you're just like, holy crap, this guy is incredible. I don't know that there was anything. I think it was just this cumulative effect of... This guy's turning out three books a month for crying out loud, and they're all awesome. How is this even possible? And you know, and then and then it was like, I, I want to be that guy. How can how can I do that? What does it, what does it take to be able to do that? And I mean, honestly, going through, I'll do the comparison with you with your work. Going through your Savage Dragon stuff, I see the Kirby influence, and it shines through so brightly in the best ways possible. You. You still have like an emulation of someone else's style, but you have your own where you, boom, it's just perfect. Well, I'm, you know, I like the excitement of the, that work. I like the energy of it. But I also know that there are, there are pieces, things that don't translate that well to other artists, you know? So it's like, if I'm going to start putting square fingers or big knobby knees on characters, that's probably not going to go over that well. But if I can bring some of this energy to it and bring some other stuff to it, it's like, you know, you take the good and and maintain as much of your own identity as you can in the mix and hope that the amalgam works out and that people enjoy what you're doing. I will say, though, many artists have utilized it, and I've never seen it done bad, the Kirby graphics. It's always the one thing I absolutely love. I've never seen it done bad by somebody. It's just... It oh, I've seen it done bad. <laughs> we won't name names, but I... <laughs> but it's... The, the, the trick is to think of the, the, uh, the negative shape rather than the shape that you're making with the black. So you're thinking of... You're, you're making a shape in white, and the black is chipping away at that. But I've seen guys where they just don't don't put enough dots down for it to really be anything and 
It's like, all right. That doesn't look that cool, dude. And for those of you out there who don't know what Kirby Crackles are, Eric? It's a, it's a pattern made with black dots that he'll use. And initially he was using it primarily for things like energy. But as time went on, he would use it for anything from a, a black guy's hair to fire to water to... I mean, he would just find the texture on a, on a helmet, on a tank, uh, textures on rocks and on just various things. And it's just this cool invention that he, that he came up with that was able to use on anything. When you guys were working at, I, I believe it was, he was doing a series for Image. Well, he had, he was not no longer drawing by the time Image came around. And what we did is he had a, he had a thing that he had, he had some pages that were unused, or, that were kind of just take, we, we were able to take it and turn them into a, something. So he had a, a like, a bunch of the pages were from an abandoned uh, Bruce Lee comic that he wanted to pitch. I've never heard about this. So he had this, and so, and there was a bunch of other pages of other stuff, and, and we were able to kind of just take it and go, all right, we'll turn this this. I don't actually know who strung it all together and how that worked, but it was pretty cool. And it was kind of, it was neat to work on his actual art because we were inking his physical artwork, which was really cool. But then as soon as you inked it and erased it, you're like, oh crap, what did I do? That was his work and I just erased it. I actually have a friend who got a commission from somebody and he would erase the pencils after they were inked. Like you could see like little parts of the pencils and he goes, it's incomplete, I don't want that. No, you leave that in there. It's 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 like the flavor, the spicing of the, you know, the image, you know? And... <laughs> that is not, this we're isn't not Chris. Chris, Chris we're just doing a, we're just doing an interview. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's off roaming around right now. You guys have a great time. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Come back later when there's some other dude. So now I've been confused with Chris Aliopoulos. That, that yeah. feels pretty good. Yeah. Well, you're, you're you're taking up physical space, and nobody knows what he looks like. This is true. I mean, the man is the man has been on Seth Meyers. Just you know, <laughs> you got to factor that in. Now, while we're on the topic of Silver Age icons, recently with the passing of Steve Ditko. He's starting now to get a lot more recognition, especially in the mainstream media, for his contributions to the comic book medium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's awesome. This work is... I mean, when I was working on Spider-Man, I was, that was my bread and butter. I, I was looking at that stuff all the time. Because a lot of the characters over the years uh, just kind of became blander. Because one, each, each successive artist would be looking at the previous guy rather than opening up the old comics and seeing what characters used to look like. So like you had uh, Flash Thompson who started off as a guy who had kind of this head of curly hair. Over time he, he kind of ended up with the Steve Rogers comb over like everybody else. Yeah. And it was like, you know, let me go back to that. Let me 
crack those out and have a look and see what those look like and, and, and bring that back. And the thing I loved about, you know, Spider-Man, when you say that about though, all the villains he has, Stan and Steve created a character as, you know, a rogues gallery as diverse as Batman's. Oh, yeah, more so. I mean, because Batman, yeah. you go, you go, oh, Batman, uh, the Joker's obviously awesome. And then it's like, all right, Two-Face is pretty cool. And then you you start, it gets really thin really quick because you can get like a, a chunk of them, but then it's like... Hey, man, you better not be dissing Calendar, man. You better not be dissing Calendar, man. <laughs> well, I was thinking Kite Man was not... <laughs> now, what about Crazy Quilt? Crazy Quilt. Yeah. I'm the new Chris Eliopoulos. Nice to meet you. I'm the old So now, before we go... Eric, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Well, I'm on t I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on all, all that stuff. I'm Eric J. Larson on on Twitter, uh, and and I'm I'm on, on on Facebook. You just search my name and look for my smiling face, and that's that's an easy one. And then. Uh, and yeah, I'm, on, I'm in the comics, man. Just, that's the real place. You're in the funny pages. So, see people there. Very cool. Eric, thank you for your time. You are quite welcome. Next, we've got an interview that was conducted at Eternal Con in Long Island. The same weekend that I did our interview with Lou Ferrigno, we ended up getting a giant in the comic book industry in both the literal sense and the metaphorical sense. I'm talking about... Jim Shooter. And yes, that's the joke I make in the opening of this interview, but really, people, I'm kind of the king of beating a dead horse. I will make the same joke over and over and over and over. Somewhere Eddie Wilson is shaking his head right now going, yes, I have no idea what he's saying, but yes, I agree. I agree. I'm not even in the area, but I agree. And Shooter is a cool dude. He was one of those, like, whenever we do an interview, we will try and just like ease them into the interview, just like you know, have a conversation. That's why when we did our interview with Daniel Kibblesmith, writer of Black Panther versus Deadpool, it was very much a laid-back atmosphere. And you want that of an interview subject. You don't want it to be very one, two, three, one, two, three, assembly line. You want it to be eased in, relaxed. You want to make these people your friend, essentially. And that was what we wanted to do with this interview with Shooter. And Shooter was a very cool dude to sit down with. And he is a legend. He is a guy who has such a long storied career. And to be honest, I'd love to see him make a return to Marvel. Just do something. I don't know. I don't care. Just bring him back. You could see the passion he had behind everything. And one thing I'm going to point out that you obviously can't see, and it wasn't recorded, but after the interview was done, we're still sitting with him for another, I want to say, 30 minutes. And just, you know, BSing and just talking to each other. And he is a man who's so proud of the contributions that not just he's made in comics, the people around him. I was watching him pull this portfolio out and showing us the work of artists like Bill Sienkiewicz, Frank Miller, and just showing us the work like a proud father being like, look at this, look at this. This was what we did at this time. And I'm so proud of what they did with this and this and this. And that was nice. Just watching that. And now, time for that interview. Right now, we are joined with former Marvel editor and 
one of my favorite writers of all time in Marvel Comics history and DC, Thank you. Jim Shooter. Jim, first up, how's it going today? It's been great. It's been busy, and uh, this place is jumping. This is a great show. Speaking of jumping, going to real heights, I just have to point out first, you are a mountain of a man. What, what is your height again? Well, I've shrunk a little in my old age. I used to be a little bit over 6'7". I'm probably down closer to 6'6 six, six now. I actually did uh, Terrificon a couple years ago, and after the show, I'm standing there listening to you and Neil Adams, you know, pretty much hold court, just talking to each other. And I'm a tall man myself, about 6'1", so being dwarfed by you is, was an absolute treat. And Neil, no matter how tall he is, is a giant. Oh, yeah. And he has lifted up us all. Now, first off, one of the main things that is known about your career is how young you got into the profession. Yep. How young were you? Uh, the first story I wrote, I was 13 years old. Uh, I, I wrote three of them when I was 13, and then I turned 14. And um, uh, I Did you turn 15? Eventually. Okay. Uh, but uh, I sent the three in, and the editor liked them, and he called me up, and he said, we want to buy these three, we're going to publish them, and, but now, from now on, I want you to be like a regular writer, I'll give you assignments. See, I was working through the mail, I lived in Pittsburgh, and of course the offices were in New York, so he didn't really know how old I was, he just liked the stuff I sent him, so he bought it. And when he found out how old I was, he was uh, he's like, oh my God, he said, put your mother on the phone. And uh, so I had to bring my mother with me on my first business trip to the office. But it, well, it all worked out. I worked my way through high school. Uh, you know, they, they liked what I did enough to keep teaching me and uh, learned a lot. What was the one thing, because I had heard that when you were writing those stories, DC was looking for what's making these Marvel comics work so well. Oh, yeah, that's, that's just true. It's not apocryphal. It's like uh, at that time, Marvel was surging, taking off. And DC Comics were all falling. Um, when I started writing Superman, it was, it was selling 1.2 million copies a month. The book I wrote, my, my regular book, was uh, adventure comics uh, featuring Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. And that was selling half a million. There was a statement of ownership, in the, which tells you what the circulation is, in the very first issue I wrote. And there was also a statement of ownership in the very last issue I wrote. And each of them was half a million at a time when all other DC books were falling. So I felt pretty proud. I held my own, you know. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, when, while all these other DC books were falling, they couldn't figure it out. I was in, there were several meetings like this. I was in one of them where they had writers and editors sitting around a table looking at Marvel Comics trying to figure out why these things are selling. And one of their theories was it was uh, that they were garishly colored. So for a little while, DC Comics started running color in the panel gutters to make it more garish, you know? Well, that didn't work. And the checkerboard. Well, the checkerboard, they, they were doing anything they could to try to you know, get some attention. And DC's idea of hip was uh, the checkerboard, which had gone out of fashion years before. And, and the thing is, they, I, I kept my mouth shut at these meetings because I was a kid. I, those adults were talking, you know? But I, they were so wrong. I, I kept hearing them talk about you know, one of them theorized that it was bad art. That that the reason that it sold is because the, the art was crude and childlike, and maybe kids liked that because they saw Kirby's stuff as being kind of crude and amateurish, and they thought Ditko's stuff was just weird. And uh, you know, they they, they they so they they were like encouraging people to draw worse, 
and then they saw, you know, some of the artists would use a slanty panel, so they, they went through a slanty panel phase. None of this stuff did any good. If they'd asked me, I would have told them, you know what, tell good stories and tell them well. Stop writing down to people, because DC's theory was comic book readers were six to eight years old. And Stan just wrote it for everyone, you know. And uh, if they'd asked me, I would have told them, but I, nobody asked me, so I just, I just uh, shook my head and marveled at, marveled, <laughs> marveled at uh, their, their just the obliviousness to what was really going on. What was the one thing that you learned during your research looking at what makes the Marvel comics tick? Well, see, when I decided I was going to write comics, I was 12 years old. And I'd, I'd been, I'd had a little procedure in a hospital, and a children's ward in a hospital in those days, there were comics everywhere. And I hadn't read comics for years, so I read some of the DCs, and they were pretty much like I remembered them. And then I read some of these newfangled Marvel books, they were so good. And I said, if I can learn to write like this Stan Lee guy does, I could sell stories to these other guys, because they need to help. And, um, and so I spent literally a year studying comics, trying to figure out why do I like this one and I don't like this one. And, and trying also to suss out, you know, what, what the usual structure was, not the formula, but, but, but like usually they make it clear who the character is, they make it clear that Superboy lives in Smallville, you know, they, they uh, you know, there is some problem and then conflicts arise from that. Eventually, there's a climax, and then there's a resolution. And with, with luck, the hero learns something. Um, but at any rate, uh, so I started seeing that pattern emerge. And I could see Stan would break the pattern sometimes. He would do things that didn't fit the pattern, but they still, he still, in a way, got it done. You know, even if he uh, did the, uh, you know, sort of started in the middle, he always, he caught you up as, as you went along. So anyway, once I thought I had it figured out, that's when I wrote my first script for DC and sent it in. And like I said, they ended up buying it. So uh, I must have, you know, gotten close, pretty close to it. Now, one of the most famous stories that you had done for DC was the Superman versus Flash story. Now, obviously, you're over the years, you're more known now as a Marvel guy because of just the phenomenal stories such as Secret Wars. The stuff you did with New Universe is so vastly underrated as well. So what I want to know is, if you have the ability to do so, to go over to Marvel and say, hey, I got a story I want to pitch to you guys. A story that fans want to see, hero versus hero, what would you do? Hero versus hero? Much like Flash versus Superman. Well, what I would try to do is I would try to figure out heroes that I could put into legitimate conflict. Because it used to be at Marvel, and it's even Roy is guilty of this to some extent, Every time two heroes would meet, they would misunderstand and each of them would think of the other was a bad guy and then they'd fight for six pages and then they'd figure out they're both on the same side. I mean, this was like every time, every time. Routine. And, yeah, and, and it's just dumb. I mean, how stupid are these people? They can't figure out they're both on the same side. Um, at DC, um, similarly, whenever they didn't very frequently have any conflicts between heroes, but when they did, uh, it was usually for stupid reasons, and, and uh, uh, they get mad at each other or something. For, what? No, no, no. These are heroes, and they're adults. Come on. And uh, so, so the first thing I would try to do, and, and P.S. At DC, when I started, they had a rule: that if you ever had any competition between two heroes, it had to be a tie, because they didn't want to 
annoy the Flash people, and they didn't want to get the Superman people mad, so it had to be a tie for the race, and um, and similar. So, so if I was at Marvel, let's say, and and, and I would actually do a lot of thinking and, and, and research about how I could bring two characters into conflict that it might actually happen. Um, I can't name them off the top of my head, but I'll, I'll give you an example from DC. Uh, at one point, I was uh, writing for Julie Schwartz, and uh, uh, he wanted to do a story with Superman and Green Lantern. Uh, all right. So I came up with a, 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 a conflict of duty that, that you know, made Superman and, and Green Lantern. First of all, a, a Green Lantern, I think John Stewart, apparently murders one of Clark Kent's best friends. And it's, it's just almost an open and shut case. It looks, it, it, it looks awful, right? And uh, uh, so, uh, so, okay, Superman goes and finds Stewart and takes him into custody. He's going to bring him to justice. Green Lantern comes and says, no, wait, he's a Green Lantern. And so he has to face justice before the Guardians of Oa. Superman says, no, I know about you guys. You keep bringing Sinestro to justice and he keeps escaping. Baloney. You know, I'm, this guy's going to, you know, he's going to face the law here. So they don't get into a fight right away or anything, but they do, you know, argue about it. And, and, and at one point, Green Lantern tries to sort of sneak him away and Superman gets peeved by that. Anyway, and eventually I build it carefully and I get it to where it's, there's really no choice. One of us is gonna, Green Lantern is duty bound to take this guy to Oa. Superman says, no, you're not. And if eventually it gets into a, a, a bit of a fight. The way I ended that story is that Superman gets the upper hand and he kind of whacks him and, and Green Lantern falls down and well, actually flies 40 feet and falls down. And uh, and then Superman's, oh my God, I, I, I just hurt my friend. You know, I mean, like, then he feels terrible, you know. And he runs over and, and, and uh, he's like, are you all right? And Green Lantern gets up and says, yeah, I'm fine. And, and he says, uh, you can have him. And he walks away. And, and Superman says, that's the last thing I expected you to do because you're Green Lantern and I've never seen you walk away from a fight. And, you know, and Green Lantern says, well, you see, this ring isn't mine. This ring belongs to the Guardians. And I'm allowed to use it for the purpose intended. He said, now the Guardians have just told me that they've discovered the steward is innocent and that will come out. And so there's no need to bring him there. And, and so you can have him, you know, and he starts to walk away. Superman says, gee, I, I just, I still can't believe you're not like, you know, you know ready to kill me. And Green Lantern says, oh, if this ring was mine for 10 seconds, I'd knock your ass to Saturn. <laughs> he didn't say ass, but, but uh, you know, uh, but I mean like, like it's, a, it, it's conflict of duty and then it's Green Lantern's duty to use the ring for what it's intended. He's not there to take out personal vendettas on Superman. If the, if the case is closed, the case is closed. So I try to do something like that, and I try to find two characters that that worked with. And it, it, it's, it's tricky at Marvel, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the characters done well are very complex. So you'd have to really find some real solid conflict of duty. Uh, I, I actually made fun of Roy a little bit, and, and I, I did, wrote the, uh, uh, in Solar, I had this character called the Eternal Warrior, and he was supposed to be the protector of the Geomancer. Well, Solar finds a Geomancer, the first Geomancer is afraid of him, 
And so I convinced him, no, I'm okay, you know. So anyway, what the, the all the eternal warrior knows is, is that this the kid has been kidnapped by what appears to be a bad guy. Dan was roaring up in his motorcycle, he jumps off and he says to Solar, he says, he says, first let go of the boy. And Solar says, he says to the kid, he says, You know this guy? He says, Yeah. He says, Well then go stand by him. You know? And for the first time in the history of comics, they didn't fight. They just had lunch. They had a good time. You yeah, know? No, they introduced each other. They so, worked hi, 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 I'm 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 Gilad. Ho, I'm Phil. You know, and and they, you know they they're, they're like they realize pretty quickly they're on the same side. See, I, to me, I don't. I was always in favor of smashing cliches and just not doing the expected. And you know, I mean, Stan used to do that. When Stan was in the '60s, the early '60s, he had Spider-Man wash his costume. I never saw a hero launder his costume before. You know. I, I, all kinds of little touches like that that made it real. Spider-Man got a cold, you know. Uh, uh, you know, it, all different little things. The Fantastic Four, you know, Torch was a practical Joker. And, and, you know, I mean, it, it was all made so much sense. They were all like real people. It yeah, makes them human. Yeah, that's, and that was that was always my goal. And I'll tell you, it worked to some extent because, like I said, after my five-year run on the Legion. It was selling the same as it was when I took over at a time when all the other books went down. Superman went way down. Superboy, they had to cancel. Um, uh, it, you know, all the other books were falling. And I, it wasn't just me. I had some great artists. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, I think uh, the theory is sound. You tell a good story. You tell it well. You care. You know, and you try to make the... The, 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 the characters as real and as convincing as you possibly can and ignore the cliches throw them down and dance on them now you eventually would go on to become the editor of Marvel Comics right how did that come about and also what was the hardest part about that role oh man well the way it came about was um, uh, I was doing some work for DC and uh, I got a call from Marv Wolfman and he said that he needed uh, someone in the editorial office to be kind of his assistant. Was I interested? And I said, well, I'd talk about it, sure. So we made it uh, to an appointment. I flew up to New York and I talked about it. And he's describing the job. Chris Claremont had had the job before me. And Mar was describing the job. And he didn't even really have a title for it. He, was, he kept saying it was like a, you're sort of pre-proofreading all the books because as it was then, a lot of the books would come in finished, I mean inked and lettered, and then if any corrections had to be made, it was really hard. But if you checked them in the plot and the pencil and the script, you could make corrections, if necessary, more easily. So I said, well, you want me to be the editor? He said, well, I'm the editor. I said, no, you're the editor-in-chief. You're, what you're describing to me is editor. He says, it is? I said, yeah. So he said, well, I don't want to call you editor. I said, well, you know, Marv, I don't really care what you call me if the money's okay, you know. And the money was okay, and he decided he wanted to call me associate editor. But I was basically second in command. I was Mr. Spock, you know. And uh, and so I edited all the books. And uh, so that goes on for a couple of years. In that couple of years, we went through three editor-in-chief. Uh, they, they, Marv, they got rid of Marv. Uh, he was replaced by Jerry Conway. Jerry Conway lasted three weeks. Marv had lasted a year. Jerry Conway lasted three weeks. And then they got Archie Goodwin. He lasted about 19 months. During that time, 
Stan, who didn't really have a job there. He had no day-to-day -day duties or anything like that. His job was to be Stan, try to sell TVs and mo TV and movies, things, shows and stuff. Um, so he wasn't really, like, didn't have any real direct responsibilities with the comics. On the other hand, he was Stan, and if he said do something, you'd do it, because he's Stan, right? So he had, of course, they had the ear of the president of the company, and in the course of that time, I was writing the Spider-Man newspaper strip with him. I'd write the story, uh, I'd draw little layouts, John Romita would draw the strip from my layouts, and then Stan would write the dialogue from the, the plot I gave him, and that's how we worked. So he got to know me, and when Archie was going to leave, uh, Stan convinced the president of the company to hire me. So I came in on the first working day of January 1978, and you asked me what was hard about it? Man, everything was late, months late, tragically late. Books were missing shipping all over the place. Uh, so it, it took me uh, uh, four months to be shipping the correct number of books every month. And, and then by the end of that year, we were on time. For the first time in Marvel's history, since 1939, we were on time. And we stayed on time for 10 years that I was there. Uh, so getting the schedule caught up was one thing. Trying to increase the quality of the work was another thing, because all that stuff back then just wasn't very good, you know, in the, the sort of mid-70s period. And uh, so to get better, books I had to get better people to get better people I had to you know raise the rates and provide incentives and benefits and stuff like that and I I had the authority from the president of the company I reported directly to him and he wasn't interested at all in the comics so I could pretty much do anything I wanted but I had the authority to do some of these things to start getting better people and we got better people we got you know uh, Simonson and, and um, uh, of a Starlin came back and and, and uh, Wrightson came back, and, uh, and I got Archie Goodwin to come back, not as editor-in-chief, but as, as working for me, which that was a coup, because it's hard to be somebody's boss and then turn around and then they're your boss, you know. Um, but he came back, and I got great guys like Larry Hama and Louise Simonson and, and uh, uh, Carl Potts and other people like that to be editors, which helped a lot. And uh, so we started getting stuff on time. The stuff started getting better. We started making more money. The more money we made, the more I had to play with. And so we introduced royalties. And all of a sudden, we went from late and, and everybody starving to death because they weren't, nobody was making much money to on time and real prosperous. I mean, I, I had uh, artists. I literally made a couple millionaires, you know, and, and everybody was doing pretty well. Uh, my favorite story is that one Christmas, Chris Claremont bought his mother an airplane for Christmas. Wow. Yeah, I mean, a, a nice airplane, too. I mean, he, she was a pilot. He was making so much money. And John Byrne, one time, when um, uh, the royalties, uh, I handed him, personally handed him a, a royalty check for $30,000 for one issue of one comic book for which he'd already been very well paid. You know, and that wasn't the biggest check he ever got. I just happened to be in the accounting department. They said, oh, look, it's a check for John Byrne. I said, oh, give it to me, I'll give it to him. You know, and um, uh, so I mean, they, people were doing pretty well, and that that was hard getting from where it, I picked it up to a point where we were doing pretty well. And the other problem was on the first day I took office. That's the day that the copyright law changed. It, it, it used to be that if if something was if the company owned the work, in other words, it was work for hire. All you had to do was, uh, you know, uh, 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 assert that it was a 
collective work and there was an editor in charge and that was it. The new law made it so you actually had to sign a contract in advance. So I come in the office, I'm sitting at my desk for the first, you know, I just sat down at my editor-in-chief desk, phone rings, it's the company counsel, and she says, what have you done about the copyright law? I said, lady, I've been here 15 minutes, you know? It's like, what do you mean, what have I done? And so, uh, so anyway, found out that all this stuff, all these guys had to sign, sign contracts. Nobody wants to sign on anything, you know? And so they were a little resistant. That was a big problem because Neil Adams at that time was a big champion of creators' rights. He was starting a guild and he planned to go on strike against Marvel. I was like, Neil, I'm, we're friends. I said, Neil, you're not helping me here. You know, I, I'm going to do the same things you want. It's just going to trying to do it from the inside. He said, Well, I'm trying to put pressure on him from the outside. I said, You're just making it harder for me. Anyway, what happened was the industry was in such a free fall. Marvel was kind of holding its own. DC was collapsing. They canceled 40% of their titles on one day. And after that, that next morning, I had a line out the, out the door into the, out in the hall of DC guys looking for work and Marvel guys willing to sign the form so they could keep their jobs. You know, and so that solved, the, the guild went out of business and, and, and then the copyright thing was a problem. But I'll tell you, that problem was tough. It, was a, it took a long time to get everybody to understand. It's going to be work for hire. They won't let me change that, but it's going to be good work for hire. You're going to have benefits. You're, you're going to get health insurance, good health freelancers now. All you got to do is three jobs a year. You get good health insurance, good life insurance, three jobs a year. We'll buy all your materials. It used to be Marvel just provided the paper because they didn't want artists buying crappy paper to save money. So Marvel would provide the paper. I said, no, no, no. Work for hire, you provide everything. You can't tell the workers at the, at the shoe factory, you bring the leather, but we own the shoes. <coughs> you know, you can't, that, that doesn't work. I said, so we're going to provide paper, pens, ink, uh, whiteout, erasers, pencils, everything. And if you ever go to buy a Winsor Newton brush, you better bring a couple hundred bucks with you. And then, uh, so I also said, if, if, uh, you send stuff to Marvel, I'll pay your postage. If you call Marvel on business, I'll pay your phone bill. If you, uh, uh, if I ask you to come to the office, I'll pay your train fare. And and so we made it a lot better. And then people like doubled the rates and doubled them again. And then there were the royalties. So all of a sudden, people are doing pretty good. And it's fair. And they introduced an incentive uh, for if you created a new character, if you couldn't own it, but you could have ten per, or twenty percent of the revenues that from licensing and so forth, which has come in real handy for the family of Bill Mantlow, you know, because he gets all this money from Rocket Raccoon now. Um, he lives in his, uh, I believe he lives in a new house now too. Yeah, well he was, you know, he was badly injured and and so he that, that the fact that he doesn't have to be in a nursing home is good. And I also introduced a thing where if you, if you create a title, even if you don't do it after the first three issues, you always own 1% of that title. So John Byrne always got a 1% royalty on, on Alpha Flight. And I, I got, the editors all had a 1% stake in all their books so that they get a bonus at the end of the year. And um, just, you know, just tried to make it good for everybody. And, and, and that was probably the best thing I did. Getting, well, two, it's a two-step process. Getting great people like Archie Goodwin, Larry Hama, Louise, and, and then get, getting the situation fixed so that people were 
doing well. And of course, while we're doing all this, DC, they're not going to let that stand. So then they're introducing programs and they're out trying to outbid us for Frank Miller or whoever. You know, so the whole industry kind of lifted up a little bit, you know. And then we introduced the Epic Comics, which are creator-owned. You own it, you know. Jim Starlin did Dreadstar for Marvel for a long time. It was a big hit. And uh, when Marvel stopped publishing it, he owns it. You know, he has, he's had movie deals and stuff, you know, nothing made yet. But, but he's, you know, it's his. Marvel has no claim to it. Um, <laughs> same with Walt uh, Simonson's Star Slammers. And, you know, lots of stuff. I mean, there were even a few cases like, uh, <coughs> I think it was John Holden and Chris Claremont did this character called Murata the She-Wolf. And they originally did it as a work-for-hire piece. And then they regretted it. They said, you know, it's an all-new character. We did this in one of the, we signed the documents and stuff. And they said, I think I can undo that. So I fixed it. They own Murata the she you know, and, you know, I mean, I, I had a lot of clout at Marvel for a while, you know, and I could get away with stuff like that. Um, uh, the, the problem is, with, at the end, Marvel was being sold, and when a company's being sold, everything goes to hell. And so, uh, uh, I didn't, I was trying to protect my people, and became somewhat unpopular with the executives, and so they got rid of me. So now, before we go, one final thing I want to ask you a creator that you got to see rise in their talents? Two, two in particular leap to mind. One is Frank Miller. When he started out, he was this, this kid from Vermont, pretty raw, and you know, he, and he honestly wasn't all that good. And uh, uh, so uh, he had made a couple attempts to get into comics and nobody wanted his stuff. Uh, but this one trip he came and he, he, he sold a DC Comics, a one-page war job. Vince Coletta got that for him. Vince, Vince, Joe Orlando rejected his stuff. Vince, who was the art director, came across him. He looked pretty sad, I guess. And he said, what's wrong? And oh, they don't like my stuff. So Vince said, I'm going to get you a job. And he got him a one-pager. Well, that perked up Frank's spirits a little bit. And he went over to see Wally Green over at the, the, the Dell Gold Key. And Wally Green gave him a wheelie in the chopper bunch job. Frank Miller and uh, so Frank and then he had like wow he had a six page job here and a one page job here so then he comes to see the scariest person of all me and I gave him a five page tryout and he screwed it up and uh, and so when he brought it in I looked at it and I said uh, I said we'll pay you for this I said but we can't use you he said why not I said you didn't do what I told you he said well, what do you mean and then I said I, I, I went through it again and uh, it came out later that Neil Adams, he, that Neil was his hero, and he'd gone to see Neil to brag about he got a job. And uh, Neil said, uh, Neil didn't know I was the one who gave him the job. Uh, and uh, Frank said, I'm gonna do layouts. And Neil says, oh, well, you know, don't do that boring stuff, do, you know. So he didn't do it, I told him. And so when he brought the job in, I said, we'll pay you for this, but we can't use you. And he's, he gets that Frank Miller determined look on his face, and he says, give me another chance. So he gave him another chance. That worked out pretty well because then he started learning and getting. I mean, just every time you tell him anything, he got it, and he next next time was better. And pretty soon he was, uh, you know, doing all that really cool Daredevil stuff that he did. The only other guy I can think of that's like that is a guy named David Lapham who did Harbinger with me at Valiant. And he's done a lot of, uh, I believe, detective stories. Yeah, he uh, yeah, he's phenomenal. He. He's like Miller. I mean, like he showed up, he was a kid, he was delivering newspapers for a living. 
when he came. And I said, you have to come to the office so we can look over your shoulder because you're not good enough yet. So he came in the office and, and you know, we, every time you told him something, he got it. And he, he got better and better and better. And now, you know, I think he's, uh, he's kind of opted to go for sort of, well, except for the Batman stuff, he's opted to go for sort of uh, kind of more esoteric stuff. So he hasn't made quite the splash that Frank did. But I think the talents are similar. Anyway, those are the two that come to mind. So now before we go, first off, how can people get a hold of you on like, you know, social media, internet, stuff like that? Well, I have a blog. It's uh, jimshooter.com. It's easy to remember, jimshooter.com. And usually if people send mail there, um, uh, the blog isn't active right now, but it's still up. And the person who used to uh, administrate it, uh, if she gets anything, she forwards it to me. Um, I also do a lot of work through a company called Illustrated Media. And so if you look up illustratedmedia.com, you will find this website and you can get in touch with me through that. I am on Facebook, but I don't know how to use Facebook, so I don't know what good that does. Um, and uh, I guess that's about it. But I'm pretty easy to find. If you, uh, if you look around, I'm pretty easy to find. I'll be honest, we're 25 minutes, or a little over 25 minutes into this interview, and there's still so much stuff I want to cover, but we hope to do some, something with you again in the very near future. Good. Like, Maybe in a quieter place, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jim, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. So now, before we go, what is next week's episode going to be? Well, it's going to be a special episode featuring the guys from My Marvelous Year. Not Marvelists, Marvelous. Fun fact, that was what we were supposed to be called at one point. Marvelous, the Marvelous Podcast, not Marvelous Year. But they got those guys over there, they know what they're doing. And I highly recommend checking their show out. Pre-game it right before you listen to our episode next week with My Marvelous Year. Their show is a comic book reading club exploring the Marvel Universe. And yeah, it is a very fun show that I cannot recommend enough. So before we go, how can people get a hold of us on social media? Well, you can listen to the beginning of the episode or you could hear me do my special little rap at the end. Yes, I'm a rapper now. This joke fell so flat. Anyway, go on facebook.com slash... The Marvelists. Give myself a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. You can also follow us on the Twitter machine at The Marvelists. Myself at Peter Melnick. And yeah, hashtag Jeremy Bagley. Also go on Instagram at The Marvelists. Give us a like on there. Give myself a follow at Peter Melnick at EWilson9193. And also drop us a line in our email bag. I don't mention that at the beginning of the show. I want to mention that at the end. Because now you have to listen to both parts of this. You're missing something if you don't listen to this part, people. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'll, you know, f- tell you what was really an Al Capone's fault. I don't know. Jeez, that was like a dated reference. Anyway, go on your email client and email us, themarvelists at gmail.com. Questions, comments, strongly worded letters. We're going to take them. We're going to air them out. We're going to air that dirty laundry. I don't, I don't know. Anyway. TheMarvelists at gmail.com. Also, listen to us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, including TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Podbean, and of course, 
Spotify. Available for all iOS and Android devices. Not the iTunes, though. That's that's a Windows, Mac, and iPhone-only thing. So, yeah. Also, go on iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe. Five-star if you're ever so inclined. And let people know you're enjoying this show. And finally, Stitcher.com slash premium and use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists, listen to a bunch of content, including Wolverine the Long Night, and help support this show. Because otherwise, we're not doing this show without you people out there who are enjoying this show. And when you, you, know, you reflect it back with that Stitcher, a little bit of help, it's appreciated. It's a little kickback to us, and it helps us go further. Because... We've gotten tweets, we've gotten emails, we've gotten messages, and a lot of people are very appreciative of what we do, and we're glad to be that person, that consistency in your everyday life that you get to listen to and enjoy. So, for Eddie Wilson, he's Eddie Wilson. For Peter Melnick, I'm Peter Melnick. Excelsior. <laughs>